Well, hello, good morning. What a beautiful thing to have to break up, right? Hi, John. Isn't this wonderful? It's, it's very, it's, my heart is really happy. I really love that you're connecting. I hate that I have to be the bad guy. I'm so sorry. I'm the, I'm the bad guy, yeah. I'm the, I'm the fun police. Hello. I'm here to issue you all a ticket. Fun. Sorry, not the phlegm police. That would be, that's something else. I forgive you. That's okay. We're all friends. Good morning. Hi, I just got back from Ohio and Kentucky because that's where you should vacation in late fall. And it was wonderful. Amy and I had a great time. It was beautiful. I have a lot of thoughts about a lot of things. About It's just a, a part of the country where industry hath forgotten. And we had a lot of thoughts about that. But it's wonderful to be back. It's a joy to be back together with you. It's great. I'm really happy to be here. And I'm excited. I'm excited. Because... This morning, we're going to talk about sanctification. Yeah. We use five-syllable words sometimes around here, and we must explain what they mean because we're not just using five-syllable words to try to sound smart. I promise you. Sanctification, what is that? That is the process by which we become more like Jesus. Sanctification, the process by which we become more like Jesus. If Christianity is true... And if it's true, it must be good for the world. And so can sanctification offer hope? Can sanctification offer hope? How do we have hope when something we love has been taken from us? If Christianity can't offer you hope when something you love has been taken from you, you have to start to ask questions. Is it worth it? Hope. A lot of us protect ourselves from the disappointment we feel by keeping hope at a distance. How do we really engage hope? How do we think about hope? Can hope really change things? Bill Veck was called the P.T. Barnum. P.T. Barnum, they know. They know who he is. Bill Veck was called the P.T. Barnum of Major League Baseball. I read somewhere that baseball hasn't always been exciting as it is. We can thank Bill Veck for that. Bill Veck is kind of a relic of a bygone era. The man was just fun. I'm sure, I'm going to regret saying that. I'm sure there's, with, with his fun, probably scandals abounded. I don't know any of those. So if you know something about Bill Veck, he just was a fun guy. How was he fun? He realized that baseball is not about baseball. It's about being together and it's about having fun. And he said, how can we make this thing we're all doing the most fun? So he would do things like he would bring in animals to the game. And there'd be animals running around like crazy. There'd be, he'd have races going around. He'd have people dancing. He brought in bars to Major League Stadiums. And like his office was in a bar at the White Sox Stadium. He would hold meetings with politicians and celebrities in the bar. When teams, when he owned, he owned the Cleveland Indians back in the day. And when teams would come into town with good hitters... He would move the home run wall back 10 feet. This is a very fun person, right? This is, I mean, like, today we can't, sports are just such big business. We can't even imagine, like, you know, being a, not being a billionaire and owning a sport. And, like, you know, you don't make money from the game. You make money from all these other TV, satellite, con- no, 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 no. 
Bill was like, hey, we're going to have fun at the stadium. We're going to get people together. And we're just going to have fun outside. It's going to be great. And he was really good at it. He transformed the game. Think about a home run, for example. If you've ever been in a batting cage, you can just imagine the joy of hitting a home run. It's got to be the greatest feeling in the world. I have no idea. But I imagine it's the greatest feeling in the world. At a game, pre-Bill Vec, very boring. You hear a crack, you look, and then you see someone jogging around bases. Bill was like, this is a missed opportunity. He's like, fireworks, light up the scoreboard, make it crazy. And he was like, okay. So we started having fun. His son, Michael, was watching him do this and was wanting to emulate his father. And so he said, hey, Dad, I have an idea. Disco's really big. It was the 70s. Some of you remember this. And he said, let's have a disco night. They do a disco night. Hugely successful. Tons of people at the game. They were dancing. There was a party. It was great. Bill, father, says to Mike, son, hey, you know what's a successful business strategy? If something works, let's try the opposite of that thing. So if a disco night worked, let's do a disco demolition night where we just kind of hate on disco. And they got like this shock jock from Chicago involved. Do you guys know his name? I don't remember. His name was like Steve something. This is just like how he was. He said, this is a real statement he said. He said, if I'm not famous by 1980, I'm going to kill myself. He said that on the air. It's like, jeez. So they gave this guy a microphone and they're like, you host our disco demolition night. Here's some of the stats from that night. 50,000 people came to the game. Totally fine. Another 30,000 people came to the game without tickets. They called the Chicago PD and said, I think we have a situation on our hands. Chicago PD did not take it seriously and sent 18 officers. There was a 17-mile traffic jam. The 30,000 people outside the stadium, it was a doubleheader against the Detroit Tigers, the 30,000 people outside the stadium used grappling hooks to get inside the stadium, and it looked like this. It was, it, it, if you, the videos are online, it's, it's actually, it was 19, July 12th, 1979, disco demolition night. They put records on center field and they blew them up. It looked like a prison riot. You can find the videos online. Amazingly, no one died. But it was terrifying. Like the videos online, are, they're just eerie. Anybody who knows anything about sports knows this is one of the most shameful nights that happened in sports history. Up until this point, there had only been four forfeitures in Major League Baseball. This was one of them. It, was, it, was, it got out of control. It went really bad. Mike, his son, got kicked out of the league, and eventually Bill had to sell the team. He lost ownership. Something he loved was taken away. I want you to imagine me if Bill were to come into this church this morning, and we say, we have hope. Like, yeah. Do you? Like, how do we have hope when something we love has been taken away? How do we have hope for my friend Chris? My friend Chris wakes up every day with rheumatoid arthritis. It's a debilitating pain. She's prayed for healing. She's seen lots of doctors. Doctors are concerned that she's not going to be able to walk by the time she's 50. What hope does Chris have? And what hope does Jesus offer Chris? Or my friend Matt. My friend Matt made a few mistakes. And my friend Matt went to jail. He paid his debt to society. He's out of prison now. He's working. He's got a job. He's providing for his family. 
but he lives every day with this fear, people are going to find out. They're going to find out what I did. They're going to find out I've been in jail. And it's over. And so he wakes up and just kind of goes through his day like a beeline trying to get to the evening where he can just get to sleep. If Christianity is true, it must do something good in the world. Do we have any hope for these people? Or if you were to go out these doors, just walk around, first 10 people you'd find say, do you have hope? I guarantee you they'd look at you like, what? Hope? What are you talking about? Our culture conditions us to not sit in the discomfort of that question. Suffering puts a squeeze on us to where we're forced to ask those questions. Do I have hope? And so many of us work to protect ourselves from disappointment by not even allowing ourselves to feel hope. What hope do we have to offer people? It's a five-syllable word, sanctification. The process by which we become more like Jesus. It's a very intentional word in there. Process. Hope can be developed. It takes time. And the question this morning is, will we trust the process? When John... The biographer of Jesus is writing to his people. He's trying to stir up within them hope. He tells them a story. Tells them a story about Jesus who's healed a man in Jerusalem. And it's stirred up all kinds of suffering for him, all kinds of chaos. People do not like this. They don't like him. They're upset. So he gets out of Jerusalem. He doesn't want to go back to Jerusalem for three chapters. He's ministering in and around And finally, his family pressures him. You can go back to Jerusalem. There's a party. There's a festival. Come on. The whole family will be there. It'll be great. So he goes back to Jerusalem. And it happens. He stirs up more conflict, suffering, things that make us ask the tough questions. And Jesus faces the suffering. And he gives us two ways that we can face our own suffering and cultivate hope. He gives us two practices that we can engage in today so that we can be a people who experience the formation of hope. We don't have to be defined by the moment we're in. There is something outside of us that is pointing us to glory. And we can be people who really do experience hope. Hope is awfully frustrating. Awfully, fr- it's so much easier to just, nah, life stinks, it'll be over soon. That's way easier. But to really have hope in the face of suffering, to do the hard work, when people show up to do the hard work we call living, how do we get equipped to really cultivate hope in a way that's real? In a way for all our friends this morning that we can say, hey, no, like, I feel that, that's real. And we're going to help form hope in each other. Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, starting in verse 12. We're going to hear about how Jesus invites us to be a people who form hope. It can be developed. John chapter 8, verse 12. And if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. 
When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge me by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true. Because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where's your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would also know my father. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offering were put. No one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Let's ask for God's help as we seek to allow ourselves to be optimistic about hope. God, when we think about suffering and the questions that suffering makes us ask, I pray that you would meet us there. God, the culture around us is not encouraging us to think. The culture around us is encouraging us to just keep plowing forward. But God, I pray that we'd be people who really sit with you and experience your companionship in the midst of our suffering and that we would develop hope through that. Ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. You can have a seat. Like I said, Amy and I, we just got back from Ohio and Kentucky and one of the things... We have these like rituals we do when we travel. One of the things I love to do is like listen to all the weird podcasts that no one else wants to listen to with me, but we're going to listen to them together and Amy falls asleep anyway. So I was listening to this very odd podcast and I'm not going to tell you the name of it because I don't want to like, I just don't want to stir up anything, but it was about a church who had been through some conflict. So they had, they had a pastor and he was kind of like a character and they brought in a new pastor and then it was just like conflict. And so I was like, you know, that interests me. Let's check it out. And so I was listening to it, and the podcast made zero sense to me. Like, I was just like, this seems like a colossally bad idea, bro. Like, what are you doing? The people you're talking about are still alive, and you're saying very mean things about them, and I don't know, like, this is a weird strategy. I don't get it. What are you doing? On one episode we listened to, though, he brought his wife in. And they started talking about some of the conflict. And from her perspective, one of the things that was really frustrating about their church was she would kind of come into the service and she would see in the lobby that people would be sitting in the lobby and they'd be hanging out while her husband was preaching. And so they're hanging out there and she saw that as like a protest to her husband. I, if you're like in the lobby hanging out, I don't, I, that's not why I was like a passive aggressive, like get in here. That's not what I'm trying to do. Uh, I was just like, oh, that's assuming an awful lot on people. Maybe that, you know, whatever. Okay. And so here's what she said though, that of all the strange things in the podcast, this really stood out to me. She said, I looked at those people and I just thought, you should be growing. You should be growing. Get in there so you can grow. And I was like, What? What in the world does she think is happening on a Sunday morning? They should be growing. Like, just because we sat in a room together, now we 
grow? Like, what? Now, I'm not trying to minimize what's happening here. But I do want to be very clear. If you came here this morning, say, okay, I'm coming to church. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hear some truth and I'm going to grow. If that's your expectation, I just want to readjust that a little bit because you're going to have a really hard week if you just leave here with that operation. Sanctification, remember our big word, is the process by which we become like Jesus. It is a process. This is an important step in that process, but it is one step. And if you think this step will make you grow, you're going to be frustrated. Growth, sanctification, is a lot like eating. When we eat, we have to ingest our food to get nutrients from it, right? You can't just look at kale. I got the vitamin C. You got to eat it. You got to ingest it. But then your body's got to digest it, and then you got to metabolize it. So just if we're staying with this analogy, what are we doing right now if in this step? We're doing what? We're ingesting. That's right. If all you do is ingest, you're not really going to grow much. We've got to ingest, ingest, digest, and then metabolize what we're hearing. And so many of us think like, okay, I heard this message. I go out in the world. I'm ready to rock and roll. And we have a really hard time integrating who we are with what we're experiencing. And so Jesus, in our passage, Jesus is in a, a whirlwind of a situation. He is suffering. He's talking to people who are trying to kill him. And they're not being nice. They're actually being kind of rude. And so Jesus makes some pretty wild statements. He's not letting it bother him. He makes this really crazy statement here. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will walk in light. And this is how they reply. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. According to Deuteronomic law, it's another five-syllable word. It just means the, the book of Deuteronomy. That one I used to sound smart. I apologize. I'm not dumb. According to the book of Deuteronomy, if you're, if you're in a trial, if you're on trial and you want to be convicted, you need two witnesses. That's what they're saying right there. And they're saying, Jesus, you're the light of the world. Where's your other witness? Jesus is something crazy. That it, it, it's true, but it jives with their understanding of the law. Look at what he says in verse 16. Um, but if I do judge, my decisions are true because I'm not alone. I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I'm one. So he's like counting for them. I'm one. The other witness is my Father. Now, why do you need two witnesses? Because this is like before ring cameras. There's, we have no idea what happened. So if someone's like, hey, that person took all the money in my bank account. And it's like, okay, they said it. No, they need two. No, no, no. And the, this other person saw it. It was, it was a way to establish, like, yeah, that's more likely to be true because we have these safeguards. Obviously, there's so many situations where you just be alone, though. And so we had, we had a situation for that. If you're alone and something happens, you could make what's called an oath. You could say, I swear to God this is true. And that's really serious. Like, the testimony for that was, I mean, the, the, the penalty for breaking that was very serious. Jesus could have very easily said, hey, I'm the light of the world. How do we know? I swear to God. And that would have worked. He doesn't do that, though. He doesn't. He says, I'm the light of the world. I have another witness. Like, where's your witness? He's right here with me. He's living in something else. 
He's so deeply aware of God's presence. It's like God is there with him. Oh my goodness, that is a different attachment. And that's what he offers. People who are, who are suffering, we offer the relational presence of God. We say, God is here. He sees you. He's coming after you. And he's coming after you to soothe you, to make you safe and secure. That's what Jesus is describing here. He's talking about an attachment he has with the Father. And the first thing, the first thing that, that helps us be people who cultivate hope is this. He helps us to reset our clocks for eternity. I don't know if you knew this. Today was daylight saving time. I did not know this. Amy and I are trying to finish up a show before we can cancel our subscription to the streaming service. So we were up a little late. And so I was a little tired this morning. And I'm kind of like groggy. And then I'm, what? It's so weird. I didn't have to reset my clock. So for everybody in here under 35, there once was a period of time when November struck that you would get in your car and the time would not be right. And you had to figure out which buttons to push. Like, do I hold it? Okay, now it just changes everything. Now it says zero. What does that mean? And you would push, and you put, and you reset your clocks. It was a thing we had to do before our Apple overlords took over. <laughs> Resetting our clock around eternity is very difficult work. We human beings, our minds work differently than any other created creature. So far as we know, animals cannot recall past events nor can they imagine a future. I know you love Fluffy, but Fluffy does not have a vision of the future where your relationship is being more deeply cultivated, where you're spending more time together, where Fluffy has figured out like how you can get away from the office and spend more time with her. Fluffy's not doing that. Fluffy lives in the now. That's all. I'm so sorry to break that to you. Human beings though, we imagine a future and we recall a past. And the problem with that is that when we suffer, what happens is we recall a past that's very much shaped by the present suffering we're experiencing. And then we imagine a future where we don't escape that suffering. When you lose your job, reason and logic do not kick in and say, it'll be fine. I just have to make me spend like a half hour updating my resume. I've got friends over here, friends over there, we'll be okay. That is not how it works for many of us. When we lose our job, oh my gosh, I knew it. I should have never gone to that art college. I've never been good at anything. This is just how I am. I'm never going to take care of again. We imagine a past. We, we, we remember a past that's shaped by our, our present suffering, and we imagine a future where we don't think we're going to get free from this suffering. When Jesus is suffering, listen to what he says to the religious leaders in John chapter 8, verse 14. He says this, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. Why? I know where I came from and where I am going, but you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. Where did he come from? Glory. Where's he going? Glory. We need to reset our clocks around eternity. Nothing in our culture is helping you do that. Nothing. We have been conditioned by our culture to say suffering is bad, it's a glitch in the matrix, and when you suffer, do everything you can right away to distract yourself. Our phones offer us more companionship than we think our God does. Nothing in our culture is inviting us to sit 
in suffering and to think about it through the lens of eternity. But Jesus comes into suffering and he remembers where he's from and he knows where he's going. Now, I hesitate to tell you that. Why? Because church people have superpowers in just kind of sweeping things under the rug in churchy language. Right? Are you suffering? Hey man, it's nothing in comparison with eternity. Are you suffering? Well, do you have any idea what's going on in Israel-Palestine right now? So no, I'm not suffering. That's not a biblical approach to suffering. That's using God to hide from God. There are four ways that when we start to suffer, there's four options we have for how we navigate that suffering. First one is not feeling, but dealing. That's when we lose our job and we're afraid. We're like, no big deal. Here's what I got to do. I just got to figure it out. I'm going to be on Indeed this afternoon. Don't worry. I got a plan. It's not a big deal. Are you scared? No. Why? I got a plan. That's option one. Option two is feeling, but not dealing. That's when life can overwhelm us. Suffering naturally brings us to the outer edges of our capacity. Feeling but not dealing just acknowledges I've gone over my capacity to handle this. This is too big, it's overwhelming, and then we get stuck. That is feeling but not dealing. We live in fear, we live in anger. That's, that is another option that we can employ when it comes to suffering. The third option is perhaps the most dangerous. It's not feeling and not dealing. It's, yeah, whatever. This is what life is. Kind of go on to the next thing. Jesus, because of his awareness of God's relational presence and the resources that were there to help him, invites us as we're in this process to be people who both feel and deal. Feel and deal. To acknowledge our suffering. The religious leaders coming at Jesus, I don't mean to, spoiler alert, they kill him. And Jesus wasn't just sweeping that under the rug. It was central to his identity. No one takes my life, I lay it down. He's feeling, he's facing it. In the garden, he is distressed. Luke's gospel tells us that he has blood coming out of his head. He's so distressed. But he's dealing. He's living into the reality. I am not alone. He's resetting his clock around eternity. He knows where he's coming from. He knows where he's going. I didn't go to art school, but I did walk around Cal Arts once. So I drew this. Eternity is an awful long time. It's honestly too big for our minds to fathom. And we love to think. We just, it was just, it's just habitual. It's in our nature that when we suffer, we're like, this is always going to be the case. I'm always going to have this with me. And when we try to comfort each other with that, no, 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 it feels just empty. It's just a season. You don't know what I'm going through. But as we're in the process of learning to develop the character of Jesus, as we're in that process, we're with someone who says, no, I know. I stepped into the pit with you. I suffered. It's real. I see you. I see your suffering. You're not crazy. You're not crazy because it hurts. 
and then he move, lifts our head to eternity. This isn't, this isn't the story I'm writing for you. You're an eternal being made by an eternal God to be with him in glory. We need to reset our clocks around eternity, not minimize our suffering with the veil of eternity, but just like Jesus, we know where we come from and we know where we're going. And to do that takes work. It's not enough to just reset our clocks. You've also got to re-narrate our story. No one in here talks to you more than you talk to you. You have an inner narrator. Everything that's going on, we sense, we experience, and then we get opinions about what we're, we're going through. We talk to ourselves constantly. And we need to re-narrate our story. This, this passage hits on a deep value that we have for this church. One of our values around here is story. That God is telling a story. He's writing a story. He's inviting us to bring our stories into this process. In order to really experience this process of sanctification, we need a new narrator. When we suffer, we fear we are alone. And then we fear we will always be alone because we always have been alone. Listen again to what Jesus says in John 8, 16. He says this, If I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. He had a strong awareness of God's presence. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not true. Just because you don't feel God's presence, because you don't see him working, doesn't mean he's not there. But the problem is, our narrator remembers our past and imagines our future, and it's like, he's not. This is it. You're on your own. And our own narrator acts like the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, the serpent approaches our first mom and he gives her statements about God and lets her draw conclusions about herself. We hear statements about God, then we draw conclusions about ourselves. Well, God's not for did God? Did God really say that? No, no, he's holding back on you. What does that say about me? I'm on my own. He's not looking after me. I thought he said eat freely. Uh-oh. We hear statements about God and we draw conclusions about ourselves. Well, let me give you a statement that Jesus said about God. I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. Jesus came to offer God's relational presence. We use theology to try to put language to these crazy experiences we're having. Here's how Paul puts language to what Jesus is talking about. Paul says this in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Jesus is describing what peace with God looks like. He says, I am not alone. He's here with me. This is a new attachment. Jesus knows he's not left alone. He doesn't have to fend for his own needs. God is here with him. These are the four S's of a safe attachment. We are seen. The Hebrew word for presence is pane. Pane means face. When God is present, he turns his face toward us. 
Next time you're in a really difficult situation, you're in a tense, maybe a conflict with someone, look at their face. What happens to their face? They don't look at you. We hide our face. We have peace with God. He's not in the other room looking to cut. Where are you? I just need to punish them. It's not what he's doing. We have peace with God. You have a beautiful face to God. We're seen. We are soothed. We're not, we're not, hey, all that suffering, yeah, that's not really suffering, that's suffering over there. You're not experiencing suffering. No, that's suffering. I care about that. I've entered your story. You're not crazy. It's painful. And then we're safe. And that safety is not fragile. The gospel is an attachment where God says, I'll take care of you. I'll meet your needs. And the, me, the needs that he meets is our isolation from him. We said like, hey, we got this. We heard the serpent's lie. We said he's not for us. We'll go figure out life on our own. But he's looking for us. The problem is not he's, looking, he's not looking for us to punish us. He's looking for us and we just don't like to cooperate. But we have peace. Not all of me believes that, by the way. There are parts of me that don't believe I have peace with God. How do I know that? I experience fear. I get angry. I feel alone. I tell myself I'm alone. I can spiral for days. I need a new narrator. We need to ingest truth. We need to, all right, here's what God is saying. He's saying you're not, I need to just, I need to receive that. And then I need to digest it. And look, here's just a fun fact. We don't digest things in isolation. Another lie that our culture tells us is nobody's forming me. I'm forming myself. Okay. Okay. Everything we know about interpersonal neurobiology, though, tells us that's a lie. See, we only use big words to sound smart. We're formed in community. We're formed through relationships. Relationships shape who we are. We need people to see us, to soothe us, to provide safety, and to let us know we're secure. We call those people the body of Christ, the church. How can you love God whom you've not seen if you don't love your brother whom you have seen. Love for God and love for his church, they're so woven together. That means that the attachment love of Jesus can be experienced in community. That's why we want you to join a connection group. Share your story. Let people see you. It's one thing to try to assure yourself in private, I have a beautiful face. It's another thing to tell people the parts of you you're hiding and them to rejoice in that. I have done that again. I remember there was a situation here at church. Somebody randomly showed up at my house and they were kind of scary. And they were like saying all kinds of things and I was just trying to get them out of, like, ah, I just want to get you out of here. And so I lied. They said to me, they said, you know, have you been talking about this with anyone? I'm like, nope, 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 nope. And then they got away and away. And I was like, oh no. I have. I totally have been talking about this with a few people. 
This is not good. I lied. And instantly the spirit of God is convicting me. Now here's a fun one. I'm like, I'm a pastor. I shouldn't have lied. Oh, I don't believe that. But I, ah. Okay. I got to tell somebody. So I called the person back. It's an awkward conversation because they were scary to me. I asked for forgiveness. And then I felt the spirit of God saying, that's not enough. You need to bring other people into this. I could get fired, I tell myself. People might not trust me. I'm a pastor and I lied. What in the world? So I call people. And this is an experience I want all of you to have. I call people here and say, hey, here's the thing that happened. Someone came to my house, they scared me. They asked me a question, I just answered from fear, not from a place of honesty, and it wasn't the truth. I lied. And I I asked their forgiveness, but I, I just want to tell you. Here's what I experienced. This is what one person said. Remarkable. I was like, did you hear what I just said to you? I'm a pastor. I lied. And that's not remarkable. What are you talking about? And they're like, you can't see what we see. You're bringing your life into the light. I was like, no, no. Like, what? Shame tells us the story. That if people really see us, they're going to reject us. Grace tells us a different story. We can't be loved until they see our face. Too many of us are trying to hide our face, though. And too many of us, we're, I feel it. It's like that, the hope sparks are sparking, but it's like, well, no, no, no. Yeah, that, might, that worked for him because he's a pastor. That's not going to work for me. I just want, like, I don't normally do this as application, but just read the rest of Romans 5 for application this week. What does hope lead to? Character. Or character leads to hope. And then what happens at the end? Glory. And then what happens after glory? Those who hope in him will not be put to shame. But it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. These things take time. Culture tells us if it doesn't work right away, bow out. But these things take time. The story of Mike Veck doesn't end with him getting kicked out of the league. It doesn't end there. He did get kicked out of the league. It was terrible. And sent him into a spiral. He started drinking a lot. He lost custody of his daughter because of his alcoholism. He had his own narrator saying, like, why should I even fight for custody? Who's going to give a drunk custody of their daughter? And he spiraled out of control. One of the things, though, that he, he had hope for was he always wanted to do what his dad did. So he was living in, he heard an opportunity up in Minneapolis. I think the Twins had just won the World Series. And there was a less than minor league team that was looking for ownership. It was like basically a high school team. So in a town where they don't need you, they just won the World Series, no one's going to these games. They said, hey, why don't you come and do here what you did in Chicago? And it gave him something to work toward, move his life towards, and he started doing it. And he started mimicking his dad. And he started getting his life together. It was a second chance. He started doing exactly the same things that his dad was doing. And like some of them are not great. Like they had like... It was like very vaudeville and they made like sideshow spectacles out of human beings. Not great. 
But he created a culture of joy and fun and people having fun around baseball again. It started giving him hope again. All the while, while this is happening, while he's rebuilding something beautiful in St. Paul, Daryl Strawberry, who many of you may remember, the greatest natural talent probably that's ever played the game of baseball. Daryl Strawberry grew up with a traumatic childhood. He grew up in Compton, and his way of navigating trauma was through drugs. And so there were several situations where he had gotten caught smoking crack, he'd gotten several DUIs, and the league had said, we've had enough of you, and they kick him out. Daryl Strawberry is kicked out of the league, He's lost. He's burnt out. Mike's got a second chance. Mike's got this new team going. And his wife says, why don't you give Daryl a second chance? No way. Are you crazy? I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. No way are we doing that. And she looked at him and said, you of all people who's been given this amazing second chance, you of all people should extend that to him. So he invited Daryl to come onto the team. He invited Daryl onto the team, and Daryl was lost when he started the season. But it's really hard to stay lost when you're having fun. It's really hard. And so there was a lot of fun, and Daryl started, he said he fell in love with the game of baseball again. And so there was one game where he was set to break a minor league record. He'd hit three home runs, he was about to hit four. But there was a teammate of his that he had formed a relationship with and liked. His name was Dan Stevenson. Dan Stevenson was an athlete who had no legs. Again, it's the vaudeville thing. He had him on the team, but Mike wouldn't put him in games. Dan had written several letters to Mike, like, come on, put me in, put me in. I'm an athlete. I really want to play. And Mike never took it seriously. So Daryl Strawberry, as he's about to break a record, doesn't go in the game and says, Dan, get in there. Dan gets on base. Daryl Strawberry said that was part of the moment where he fell in love with baseball again. His life turns around. And later that year, he's picked up by the Yankees goes to the World Series. And that story, Michael Vack has been called, he's the saint of second chances. And that gives me hope that relationships really can make things right. You had two people, an owner and a player, who were lost. But what brought them together were relationships. Now, hope is a tricky thing. It's a frustrating thing. You allow yourself to start to feel hope. You're opening yourself up for disappointment. Many of you hear that story. You're like, that is the most ridiculous fairy tale I have ever heard. You can fact check me. It's a documentary by Morgan Neville called The Saint of Second Chances. But here's the thing. When Amy and I were in Ohio and Kentucky, we were having dinner around the table, and it was a lovely dinner. Then we heard a rumble, and an alien spacecraft came and took Amy and I away. We went through a time-space continuum to a galaxy far, far away. We saw technology there that, whew, it's coming. It was beautiful. Their leaders showed us around. We were there for 2,000 years. We flew back through this space-time continuum, back at the dinner table. And it was like we were only gone for a second. Now, if I told you that story in all seriousness, I would be looking for another job. But we're people who says God, capital G-O-D, came into our world with a body, died for us, told us we're not alone, gave us his relational presence, and he left us, but don't worry, he's coming back on a horse. 
And just like my alien story sounds unbelievable, that story sounds unbelievable to our neighbors. Until some of you say, yeah, happened to me. I met him. He, he saved me. I know him. Yes, me too, me too. And what happens? Hope is started to be formed in a community. Friends, we can't do this alone. We need each other. I can't follow Jesus by myself. I need you to help me follow Jesus. When I forget, to remind me, to help me re-narrate my story, to remind me of eternity and the glory we're headed for. We need each other for that. And it's a process. And the question before us today is, will you trust the process? Or will you trust our culture that says we have to have it now? Will you trust the process and see him work? That you are seen. You have a beautiful face. You're soothed. You're not crazy. You're safe. He's looking for you. But he's not looking for you to punish you. And that gives you glory. A secure future. Will you trust the process? Jesus. Oh, that this were easy. God, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help our unbelief. Ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.